You are listening to a message from the Living Word community in Center City, Philadelphia. We are followers of Jesus Christ, called to love God and love people, to share Jesus and help people experience true life change that can only come from knowing Him. We hope that you enjoy this message today. For everyone who is going to be part of Sunday School uh, today, you can start to make your way downstairs. I see our Deacon Beth Saginot in the back. She will let you know where you are heading. So for Sunday School, if you are part of Sunday School, please know that you are free now to make your way down there. He is risen. Amen. Amen. What a blessing to be able to declare that. What a blessing to be able to respond to that. This past week, many of us have been reflecting on the final week of Jesus' life, the things that transpired in that final week in Jerusalem, the crucifixion which we remembered on Friday, with seven excellent words shared from seven speakers. And of course, today we remember the empty tomb and the resurrection. So a lot of things have been running through my mind and my heart this week. But there's a, a, an account of the, the trial of Jesus in the Gospel of John that really just a small snippet of it has really stood out to me this week. Pilate says at the end of John chapter 18, You are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate said. And this is actually not going to be my message. This is just a a quick intro. But I remember for years, Pastor Buck really resonated with that very snide and, 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 and very condescending question that Pilate asked, because he really saw that was a question that our culture was asking. What, what is truth? Why does it matter anyways? You know, and today we are living in a culture that's absolutely convinced that whatever is true for you is true. Your truth is truth. Well, it's interesting because at that moment, Jesus left Pilate's question unanswered. It's amazing because as we read the four gospel accounts of the trial of Jesus as he stood before the Sanhedrin, as he stood before Herod, as he stood before Pilate, there were times that he answered and there was times that he didn't. There was times that he spoke And there were times that he remained silent. And as Pilate asks this very condescending and very sarcastic question, what is truth? Jesus remains silent. But of course we know and his disciples knew that the night before he had answered that question. The night before he had said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is truth. Our culture can say whatever they want. They can say truth is relative. They can say your truth is truth. It won't change what is actually true. Just because someone believes something doesn't mean it's true. Jesus is truth. He always has been the truth. He is the truth at this very moment, and he always will be the truth. That will not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the glorious opportunity that each one of us has is to accept this amazing testimony of Jesus. I am truth. Truth is the person of Jesus. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for allowing us to gather together today, for the blessing of being able to be together as sisters and brothers in Christ. We thank you so much for all the things that have already transpired, the glorious time of lifting up your name in worship, the power of being able to take the bread and the cup and, and, and physically participate in your death and resurrection. The testimony that we heard from John and the exciting doors that you are opening for him. And Lord, now this opportunity to take a little bit of time and consider you again and reflect on your word together. Father, as we often pray, we, we just again ask that you would be present, that you would be giving us wisdom, that your spirit would be here, that your spirit would be speaking to each one of us. As we consider Jesus Christ, as we consider the declaration of your word about him, we pray, Lord, that each one of us would hear what you are saying. And Jesus, it's in your name, in your name alone, that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, together we are going to look at a passage of Scripture from Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And I'll give you a moment to, to turn there or to get your electronic Bible there. And just, again, want to thank John for being in our midst and sharing his testimony with us. And he said he has to depart early because he has a celebration luncheon with his sisters. But I think the real reason is he knew that I was preaching today. And he's, man, any excuse to get out the door early. So I'm going to call you out, John. If I'm still up here when you stand up and walk out, I am going to call you out. <laughs> Many of you know that John and I have been great friends and, and, and brothers uh, for years. He and I lived together for four or five years. So it's always a blessing when we have him with us. Uh, really, really dear brother. And we are so excited about what the Lord is opening for you, John. So thank you for sharing that. And we will continue to pray for you. So, so Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. This is not necessarily going to be a, a resurrection sermon. Um, I've preached a lot on Resurrection Sunday over the last few years and always trying to just hear the Lord's heart for what he would want me to share on a Resurrection Sunday. It's a great Sunday to preach. It's a powerful Sunday to preach. There's a lot of amazing accounts of what Jesus did after he rose from the dead before he returned to the Father. But today, I want to read these verses from Colossians chapter 1 and take some time focusing on that. But before I read them, there was just another phrase that was really constantly running through my head this week. And it simply was the phrase, we need the resurrection. We need the resurrection. Without it, there is no hope. As the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthian church, if the dead are not raised, if Christ is not raised, we are to be pitied and despised more than anyone else. We need the resurrection. We needed it 2,000 years ago, but we continue to need it every day of our lives. We need the power of the resurrection. We need the hope of the resurrection. We need the glory of the resurrection. Because you know on Friday everything looked lost. It seemed as if Christ had been defeated. It seemed as if his enemies had prevailed. It seemed as if darkness had quenched out light. It couldn't have been more bleak. It couldn't have been more grim. There couldn't have been greater cause for the disciples who had followed him to think it's over. And although we will never have that severity of hopelessness in our own lives, we always have a measure of hopelessness. If we're looking at a specific circumstance, if we're looking at a situation in the world, if we're looking at a situation in this city of Philadelphia, there will always be situations that appear to be hopeless. There will always be situations that appear like the Son of God's body, cold and dead, being placed in a tomb. And if we're not careful, we will stay trapped in Friday. 
if we're not careful, that darkness will start to win the day in our hearts. And we will start to think that sin really is winning. That darkness really is prevailing. And that is why we need the resurrection. We need the resurrection. Because that is God's declaration to the entire universe. In Christ, there is always hope. In Christ, the darkness cannot win. In Christ, the grave will not prevail. So whatever darkness you are facing right now, whatever hopelessness has begun to creep into your heart, just remember that Jesus rose. Jesus rose. And we needed his resurrection 2,000 years ago. We need his resurrection today and tomorrow on the unnamed Monday after Resurrection Sunday, we have Palm Sunday and Monday Thursday and Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, and then we have tomorrow. But you know what? We're going to need the resurrection of Jesus Christ tomorrow. And he will still be alive. The tomb will still be empty, and he will still be truth. Well, is everyone at Colossians 1? Is everyone at Colossians 1? So Colossians chapter 1, I want to read verses 15 to 20. I think they're going to be on the screen behind me, but it's always good to have the word in front of you if you have it. Um, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers, or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn of the dead, so that in everything he might have the first place. For he was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now in those six brief verses, the word he or him or his is used 13 times. 13 times in those six brief verses, the Apostle Paul uses the word he or him or his. And it's interesting because we pick it up in the middle in verse 15. You have to go back and look at verse 13 and 14 to see the reference. The reference is that we have been brought into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. So, of course, we know it, but the he, the him, the his that the Apostle Paul is talking about is the Son, is Jesus Christ. You know, and as you read those six verses, you may say, well, that's a lot of he and him and his. That's a lot of Jesus. You know, aren't there other things to talk about? Aren't there other things to repeat? Well, you know, actually, no. You know, 13 is probably about 100 or 100,000 too shy. You know, sometimes we as Christians, we feel like we can talk about Jesus too much. And so maybe we shrink back. Maybe we recoil. Now, of course, there's a lot of ways to talk about Jesus. But there is nothing more worth talking about than Jesus. As we mentioned on Friday, he really is the center of it all. And that's, of course, what the Apostle Paul declares, at least in part, in these verses. You can never make it too much about Jesus. You can never reference him too much. You can never say it really is all him too much. A couple of months ago, someone was having a conversation and they said, you know, well, it doesn't always have to be about Jesus. 
It doesn't always have to be about Jesus. There's a, there's a place in my life for Jesus, but then there's a place in my life for everything else. And unfortunately, that's the way a lot of people think. Well, a lot of people think there's no place in my life for Jesus. I'm not even sure what I think about him. But for those even who make a half step towards Jesus, they say, well, there's a place in my life for Jesus, but then there's got to be a place in my life for everything else. Well, fortunately, the scriptures and Jesus himself never agree with that incredibly faulty perspective. It's always about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. He really is the center of everything. And we can never have his name on our lips too much. We can never have him in our heart too much. We can never be thinking about him too much. So 13 times in six verses seems like a lot, but it's not even close to what he ultimately deserves. Don't be afraid to always make it about him. Don't, because it is. When this age ends and eternity begins, what is all of creation going to be doing for all of eternity? Making it all about Jesus. That is what this universe, that is what this creation is destined for. For all eternity, it will be all about Jesus. So don't be afraid to make it all about Jesus today because all you're doing is preparing for eternity. So I came up with a title for the sermon. I actually forget now what the title is. Is it up there, Carl? I, it was not a great title. Something about the glorious person of Christ, the glorious work of Christ. He is glorious. But pretty much all we're going to do today and the rest of the time that we have together is just kind of go through phrase by phrase, and just take a, a few moments to meditate on what the Apostle Paul declares to be true about Jesus. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible. The Apostle Paul, when writing Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.17, declared that. Declared that he is the immortal, invisible God. You know, sometimes we wish that we could see God Sometimes we wish that with our natural eyes we could see God. Wouldn't that make faith a lot easier? We maybe think of, of Sinai where God showed up in power and shook the mountain or think of some of the incredible visions that some of the Old Testament saints had. But the Bible declares that God is invisible. He is. He is invisible. And it will always, always, always take faith to believe in him. Don't ever be ashamed of having faith. Don't ever, ever, ever be ashamed of having faith. The God that we love, the God that we serve, he is invisible. By faith, we approach him. By faith, we follow him. By faith, we trust in him. He is the immortal, invisible God. But 2,000 years ago, something incredible happened. 2,000 years ago, the invisible God became visible. The invisible God became visible. And when he was first seen, he was a baby. He was a newborn. And in pretty much every way, he looked just like you and me. Now, of course, he looked like a first century Palestinian Jew, but he had hands, he had feet, he had eyes, he had a nose, he had a mouth. In every way, he looked like us. And at that moment, the invisible God became visible. About 30 or 35 years later, the night before Jesus was crucified, just after he said, I am the truth, Philip said to him, Jesus, show us the Father, and that will be enough. And it was one of those moments where Jesus was just kind of a little disappointed in the question. Philip had been with him for three or three and a half years, and he's like, really, Philip, don't you get it yet? Don't you get it yet? Well, of course, I always think, yeah, why didn't you get it? But I thought, yeah, if I was one of the disciples, I would have been as lost as they were. 
And he says, look, Philip, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. The one who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, of course, Jesus has died. He's risen. He's returned to the Father. He's no longer on this planet the way he was 2,000 years ago. So it continues to take faith to believe. But when Jesus came into this world, the visible God, excuse me, the invisible God, became visible. And now by faith, we have seen him. But he still has a body. We're going to see that in a couple of verses. And in fact, everyone who has chosen to be a follower of Jesus Christ is now his body. Think of it, 2,000 years ago when Jesus was on earth, 2,000 years ago when Jesus willingly submitted himself to the humiliation of the incarnation, he could only physically be in one place at a time. When he was in Jerusalem, he was not in Galilee. When he was in Galilee, he was not in Tyre and Sidon. He could only physically be in one place at one time. That was part of the, the humbling of the incarnation. He said, you know, actually, it's better that I return to the Father. It's better that I leave you. Of course, the disciples were thinking, how could it ever be better that Jesus leaves us? It's better that I leave you because when I leave you, the Father and I will send you the Comforter. And now, of course, we know the Holy Spirit has been given. And for each one of us who has chosen to give our lives to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in us. And now, everywhere you are, Jesus is. Jesus doesn't have one single human physical body. Jesus has millions. Because everywhere one of his own is, he is present. He is present. That passage that John read for us is such an incredibly powerful passage about being an ambassador, being a representative, being the very body of Christ everywhere you go. You really can and are his hands. You really are his feet. You really can be his mouth. That's what Jesus has done. So in a sense, God remains invisible. But hopefully, when the unbelieving world looks at us, I hope they see him. Because If they don't see him in us, where are they going to find him? If they don't see him in us, where are they going to find him? And we each know how easy it is to respond like the world does. To respond with hate, to respond with anger, to respond with vengeance, to respond with all of those sinful tendencies that rise up in our flesh. And we do have to die to ourselves daily. But as Christ continually and powerfully changes us, as we more and more become conformed into his image, when the unbelieving world looks at us, they see him. The invisible God, 2,000 years ago, became visible. But the invisible God is still willing to reveal himself today, but he wants to do it through us. So Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the firstborn over all creation. Now we think of firstborn and we think of being born and we think of a beginning. You know, there was a day that you were born. There was a day that I was born. There was a day that we had a beginning. So a lot of us read that verse and think, well, is that implying that Jesus has a beginning? If he was first born, doesn't that mean that he had a beginning? And in fact, that's in what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. I don't know if any of you have had a conversation with Jehovah's Witnesses recently, but they actually believe that this is evidence that Jesus had a beginning. Well, I'm absolutely 100% convinced that's not what Paul meant when he declares that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. We have to understand the Old Testament Israelite way of thinking 
a firstborn, to begin to understand accurately what the Apostle Paul means here. Today, being a firstborn or being a firstborn son in some cultures means a lot. In American culture, it doesn't really mean that much. So for example, my wife and I have two amazing daughters, and there's not even a moment of a single day of my life that I wish I had a son. If God had given me a son, I would have been delighted with him. But I couldn't be more delighted, more thrilled with the two daughters that the Lord has given me. I don't have this aching in my heart wishing that I had had a son instead. Now, if I were living, say, 5,000 years ago and I did not have a son, things would probably have been very different. Because the firstborn son was given a place of incredible responsibility, was given a place of incredible privilege, and was given a place of, of, of greater inheritance within the household. So when Paul is declaring that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, he's not declaring that Jesus has a beginning. What he is declaring is that Jesus has ultimate place, preeminence, and privilege over all of creation. It's all his. It all belongs to him. He is the firstborn of creation. No one has greater place, no one has greater standing, no one has greater authority than him. And ultimately, what we see in Scripture is that in the end, all of creation is given to him as his inheritance. The Father will give Jesus all of creation as his inheritance. So when the Apostle Paul and when we declare that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, we are not saying he was the first thing that was created. We are not saying that he has a beginning. We are declaring that he has preeminence in first place over everything. Absolutely unique in his standing. Continuing in verse 16, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. It's amazing because so much of Colossians 1 has already been referenced either in the songs that we have been singing or the words that have been shared. John 1.1 1, 1 was shared earlier. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And all things that are created were created through him. The Apostle Paul is simply echoing the declaration of John chapter 1. Jesus is the creator of everything. He is absolutely the creator of of everything. And the thing that I love is that the more that science advances, the more that science increases, the more that scientific knowledge grows, the more excited we should get about Jesus being creator of everything. Unfortunately, in the West, the advance of science in the last couple centuries has coincided with the removal of God from science, which is never ever what it was historically. The greatest scientists in the Western world before, say, 100 or 200 years ago, they all believed in God. And, in fact, what usually propelled their scientific research was the absolute conviction that God existed. Because there was a God who was faithful to his creation, creation was able to be studied and evaluated and experimented upon. Unfortunately, that was the great presupposition of earlier decades of science that has now diminished. But as believers, we don't have to lose that. As scientific knowledge continues to advance, we can stand even more amazed in the simple declaration that Jesus is the creator of everything. I don't know. I didn't take the time. What, what is the farthest that the best and strongest telescope has looked? I know it's a long ways. I know they're taking pictures of stuff. I look at John Runkle. He probably knows. I know they're taking pictures of stuff that are... I don't know, millions of light years away, 10 million light years away. You know, in Star Trek, you just hit warp 9.9 .9 and you're there in a couple hours. But we're, we're, we're getting out there. We are getting out there. I mean, astronomy is really, really getting out there. And you know what? Jesus created all of that. And that, that, that infinite universe, however far it goes beyond the view of the telescope, Jesus created that as well. Get as big as you want. Get as big as you want with creation. And I hope I live to see astronomy get even bigger. Go even farther. See even more. Because all it is reminding me is that, wow, Jesus created it all. He created it all. Every galaxy, every whatever, every star, every... He created it all. 
But you know, the other thing that I love about science is science has gotten really, really, really small. You know, when I was in school, it was just proton, neutron, electron. That was it. And I always wondered, how do they even know those things are there? I mean, they know it. They know they're there. But now as people talk about it, you know, there's neutrinos and there's upward quarks and downward quarks. And, you know, we need Josh Sadar here with his PhD in physics to explain all. But they're getting smaller. They're getting smaller. Apparently, like, you know, neutrons are really big and protons are really big. And there's stuff that's even smaller than they are. And so, you know, no matter how small we get, Jesus created it all. So get as big as you want. Strongest telescope looking into the farthest expanse of the universe. Jesus created it. Get as small as you want. Subatomic particles, sub-sub-subatomic particles, however small we're going to get before Jesus comes again. Jesus created it all. The universe that Jesus created is really big. It's really big. It's way bigger than we know. And that's why Paul just simply says, Jesus created everything that is visible, and Jesus created everything that is invisible. The universe that Jesus created is really big. And he created it all. He created it all. Then look at the specific emphasis that Paul gives, picking it up in the middle of verse 16. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. You know, those four words that Paul chooses there are all within sort of the same idea. He's focusing specifically on authority, control, rule, and dominion. Who's calling the shots? Your boss? The mayor? The health commission of Philadelphia that's going to make us start wearing masks tomorrow? President Joe Biden? Vladimir Putin? Who's calling the shots? Who's calling the shots? Every throne, every ruler, Every power, every authority was created by him. The Apostle Paul specifically focuses on that aspect of creation. Why? Because the church that he was writing was living in the first century under Roman authority. And what we see under Roman authority is that sometimes Christians were treated well. Sometimes Christians were treated very fairly. Sometimes they had freedom to worship Jesus, and other times they were killed and horrifically tortured before they were killed for putting their faith in Jesus. The Roman Empire, when it came to the persecution of the church, was incredibly unpredictable. And so what the Apostle Paul was doing was reminding those first century Christians, Rome does not have final authority. Caesar does not have final authority. And how important it is for us to remember that. God has lent his authority to certain individuals, to certain governmental entities, and he expects them to use that authority in a way that honors him. He absolutely does. And we see that oftentimes they don't. But they will answer to him. They will answer to him. Part of our responsibility is simply to trust that all authority is his. We are just so utterly and completely dismayed at the decisions that Vladimir Putin has been making. But all authority belongs to Jesus. I don't understand why he's allowing the war in Ukraine to happen. I don't understand why he's allowing those atrocities to take place. But what I do understand is that Vladimir Putin has not stolen any authority from Jesus that Jesus has not ultimately given to him. And that one day Vladimir Putin will answer to Jesus. I don't understand all of that. I know eternity is coming, and I know eternity will bring an end to war. And in fact, this is how this passage ends, with Jesus and Christ establishing eternal reign of peace. Why it hasn't happened yesterday or today, I'm not sure. But I know it will happen. So when I think about creation, when I think about the incredibly vast, large, enormous reality universe that Jesus has created, I also remember that all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion were created by him. And so whatever temporary authority he has lent to human individuals, yes, they are responsible and they should be using that in a way that honors him. But if they do not, 
It doesn't mean that Jesus is losing control. It doesn't mean that Jesus is losing power. He is comfortably seated at the right hand of the Father, awaiting for the Father to make all of his enemies a footstool beneath his feet. And in the Father's perfect timing and in the Father's perfect way, that will happen. Last phrase of verse 16. All things were created by him and for him. So just in case you didn't get it, he created everything. But then the Apostle Paul adds that closing phrase here. Not only was everything created by him, but everything was created for him. The single responsibility of creation is to bring Jesus glory. That's why it was created. Many times in our lives, we have asked ourselves or we've asked those people close to us, what am I here for? I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know where I'm going. Sometimes that comes when we're young in life. Sometimes that comes when we're older in life. You know, when you're hitting retirement age and maybe you're leaving behind that job that you worked at for 20, 30, 40 years, you may be asking yourself the question, I I don't know what I'm here for. Or maybe when you're heading off to college and trying to pick a major or finishing up college and trying to figure out a career, you may be asking yourself the question, I don't know what I'm here for. Or maybe you're in a career that you don't really enjoy or you've been doing something and you feel like it's time for a change. We ask ourselves that question, what am I here for? Well, fortunately, to every single one of you, the Apostle Paul has given us an answer. And he's done it in two words, for him. You were created for him. You were created to bring him glory. The sun was created to bring him glory. That sparrow out there was created to bring him glory. That rock was created to bring him glory. All of creation was created for a very, very clear purpose, to bring him glory. You were created to bring him glory. So whatever career you're doing, bring him glory. Whether you're working or retiring, bring him glory. Whether you're at the beginning of your life or whether at the end of your life, bring him glory. Because that's what you were created for. And you see, the thing is, the more that you focus on what is absolutely the most important, which is bringing him glory, the specifics will fall into place. Of course it's important what major you pick, what career you pick, when you choose to retire or when you choose to change careers. Of course those things are important. But the more that you choose to simply focus on, I am created to bring Jesus Christ glory. That's why I am living on his planet. That's why I'm breathing his air. That's why I'm wearing his clothes. That's why I'm eating his food, to bring him glory. When we make that the focus, then the specifics, they do. They fall into place. Every single one of us was created to bring him glory. And of course, right now, we see a lot of his creation is not bringing him glory. But that's not permanent. That is simply a temporary state of affairs. Because we'll see that in a minute. Picking it up in verse 17. He is before all things. That's all Paul tells us here. But what Paul is giving us a a, a moment to consider is the eternality of Jesus Christ. He was here before. He was here before it all. And that doesn't mean he was created before it all. He was in existence before it all. One of my favorite declarations of this truth is found in John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus is just winding down an incredibly heated exchange with the Pharisees. And they're basically saying, look, we have our father Abraham, why do we need you? You know, we're descendants of Abraham, we're children of the promise, we're Israel, why do we need you? And Jesus says something, of course, that is grammatically awful, would have gotten an F- minus on his English test, but theologically is one of the most profound statements that I've ever heard Jesus make. He looks at his opponents and he says, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Well, the Jews really hated him. So they started to pick up stones because they wanted to kill him. Because they knew what he was saying. Because who had declared himself to be I am? God at the burning bush. Jesus was saying, I am the God at the burning bush. 
I am the God who has always been. There's some people who say Jesus never declared himself to be God. I don't know what Bible they're reading. They're not reading my Bible. They're not reading my Bible because Jesus absolutely declared himself to be God. And those who truly understood him and those who were his genuine followers also declared him to be God. One of the greatest resurrection stories, Thomas falling to his knees, my Lord and my God. Jesus didn't say, don't call me God, I'm not God. Jesus received that declaration. So just, and again, in such a simple phrase, I mean, Paul has just given us these, these brief phrases that are inviting us to consider concepts of Christ that are enormous. He is before all things. He is before all things. Before Abraham was, I am. And then he goes on. And in him, all things hold together. So this entire vast, enormous universe, an incredibly small, minuscule universe that Jesus created, the only reason it's holding together is because of him. Why is the pew that you're sitting on not blowing apart into a million subatomic particles? Because Jesus is sustaining his creation. Why are the very atoms that make up your physical body not blowing apart at this second? Because Jesus is sustaining his creation. Why are the planets not colliding and the sun exploding? Because Jesus is sustaining his creation. It's one of the most incredible declarations that we as followers of Jesus can make. Absolutely, he created it all but he sustains it all as well. Every atom in his universe is holding to its place because Jesus is sustaining it. Again, all the more reason to love science. All the more reason to just rejoice in the study and exploration of the universe that God made. I remember years ago, seminary professor gave me an example. He held a pencil and he dropped it. And he said, why does that happen? And some people said gravity, and he said, yeah, but why is gravity? Why is there gravity? Because God is faithful. Because God is faithful. God is sustaining the law of gravity. God is sustaining every aspect of his creation. He created it, and he's sustaining it. And it will stay sustained until he says it's time to destroy it by fire. That's up to him. So he is not only the creator of all things, he is the sustainer of all things. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. We've been thinking of Jesus in incredibly grand scales, in incredibly huge scales. The creator of the entire universe, as big as it is, as small as it is. The sustainer of the entire universe, as big as it is, as small as it is. But now Paul gets a little bit more specific. Jesus is the head of the church. You see, Jesus has relationship with everything that he created, but Jesus also has specific relationship with those who are his. His body, the church. If you are part of the church of Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean that your name is on an attendance roll somewhere. That doesn't mean that you show up on Sunday service. I mean, that's great. We want you to show up. We love having you here. If you want to become a member here, we'd love to have you as a member here. But that's not what he means. You see, what he means is that Jesus has created a church. It's not a building. It's not a denomination. It is the people of God. It is the people of God. And his body is the church. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have given your life to Jesus Christ, you are part of his church. But what is the church? The church is his body. That means you are part of him. You are part of him. What an incredible thought. He created the whole universe, and all creation belongs to him. But in a very unique, in a very special, in a very individual, in a very intimate way, Every member of his church belongs to him. You know, sometimes we feel like we don't belong. Sometimes we feel like we don't fit in. Sometimes we feel very isolated. We feel very alone. But you know, if you are part of his body, 
You do belong. You do fit in. And you are incredibly, uniquely bound to Jesus Christ in relationship with him. That's what he says. And he is the head. We don't call the shots in the church. We don't get to get up each day and say, well, here's what I want to do. Here's how I'm going to live my life. No. Jesus is the head. The body has one head. You know, imagine a body with two heads. I think there's some mythological creatures that have two heads or eight heads or I don't know. Well, the dragon in Revelation has a bunch of heads. Kind of a grotesque image. The church has one head. You're not it. You're not the head. Jesus is the head. And praise God he is. Praise God he is. You know, you can spend your whole life fighting the head. You can spend your whole life arguing with the head. You can spend your whole life railing against the head. Or you can just simply say, you know, the church has one head. It's not me. It's Jesus. I'm just going to submit to the head. I'm just going to bow down to the head. I'm just going to worship the head because you know what? He's the only one qualified. I spent too many years of my life railing against the head, disobeying the head, going my own way. And you know what? It was just a colossal waste of time. The church has one head, and it's not you, and it's not me. It's Jesus. And what an incredible privilege to be able to follow the head. Christ the Lord is risen today. There's a line in that hymn, following our exalted head. So he's the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. There's that word again, firstborn of the dead. Now here Paul is really capturing something incredibly powerful, and he is talking about a first in the sense of temporal reality. We know that 2,000 years ago Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. We know that. But we may remember that before Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, others were raised from the dead. Jesus himself, the gospel accounts record three individuals that he raised from the dead. Lazarus, the widow of Nain's son, and another boy. We see that Elijah raised someone from the dead. We see that Elisha raised someone from the dead. In fact, his bones raised someone from the dead. What a crazy story. Elisha's bones raised someone from the dead. So how can it be that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of the dead if others who had died were also raised? Well, you see, here's the difference, and maybe you've heard this. Everyone that is recorded in Scripture to have died and been raised again, they eventually died again. Lazarus is not here with us. No one that was raised in Scripture apart from Jesus Christ is living today. Jesus was raised never to die again. The resurrection of Jesus is absolutely unique because everyone else who has been raised from the dead died again. Jesus was raised from the dead never to die again. And remember, he was raised in a physical body. When the disciples first saw him after he had been raised from the dead, they thought he was a ghost. And what did he do? He said, touch me, handle me. Does a ghost have flesh and bones? Give me something to eat. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it in their presence. He was raised in a physical body, but he never died again. He is the first, he is the beginning of the resurrection of the dead. And what he indicates and what scripture makes clear is that one day, all of us will be raised from the dead. In fact, every human being who has ever lived will be raised from the dead. Every human being will be raised just as Christ was raised, will receive a physical body in which they will inhabit eternity. What the scriptures make clear is that the wicked will be raised and then go into eternal punishment. The righteous will be raised to enter into eternal glory and experience their reward. But Jesus is the first to receive a resurrection body. Jesus is the first to be raised from the dead, never to die again. And because of that, he has supremacy over everything. And that's what we were seeing before. He has first place. In all of creation, Jesus is unique. Picking it up at the end of verse 18. So that in everything he might have supremacy. That's what we just said. Verse 19. 
for he was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. Now, NIV adds the word God here, and probably rightly so. The Apostle Paul, when he penned this, actually did not use the word God. He just simply said all of the fullness was pleased to dwell in him, or he was pleased to have the fullness dwell in him. So we've got to sort of fill in the lines a little bit here. But of course, what we know that Paul was saying is that Jesus was and is fully God. He is the face of the invisible God. All of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And when we think about this, we think of two incredibly profound truths that the Bible teaches us. The wonder of the incarnation. Jesus on earth, completely man, completely God. The fullness of God taking on human form. It's a mystery that's beyond us. It's a glory that's beyond us. We simply accept it and worship him. And a second is like it, the glory and wonder of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. Three gods? No. One God. One God, three persons. An incredible, wonderful truth that ultimately is beyond human logic. We worship Jesus as the incarnate one. Fully man, fully God. We worship God as the triune one. Father, Son, and Spirit. We simply accept these truths. The fullness, everything that God is, was in Christ. Verse 20. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Jesus is the great reconciler. Jesus is the great reconciler. It is only through him that we can be reconciled to God. And reconciliation is that bringing what was separated into relationship, bringing what was broken into healing, restoration. That's what Jesus does. The Apostle Paul declares that he makes peace. There is nothing more wonderful than experiencing the peace of God. The peace of God which passes all understanding. That calm, that confident security that can only come from Christ, even in the midst of a raging storm. One of the most powerful pictures of that is Jesus asleep in a boat while a storm is raging and the disciples are convinced they are about to drown. Experienced fishermen in a storm so bad they convinced that was their end. And is Jesus frantic? Is Jesus beside? No, Jesus is asleep. Unbelievably controlled by the peace of the Father. There's nothing like that. But I'm almost 100% convinced that's not the peace that the Apostle Paul is talking about here. That peace is wonderful. But I think when you talk about reconciliation and when you talk about peace, the Apostle Paul is talking about something a little bit different. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, Paul declares that when Jesus died, we were God's enemies. We were his enemies. We hated him, and we hated everything about him. He should have walked away from us, or he should have blasted us into the dust. He should have, he should have, he should have, a long time ago with me. He should have given up on me. A long time ago. But he didn't. Praise God, he didn't. When I was still an enemy of God, Jesus died for me. When I wanted nothing to do with him, when I wanted no part in him, he died for me. And that has brought peace. Because you see, now, I'm not an enemy of God. I'm his friend. And I think that's the peace that the Apostle Paul is talking about. That peace that comes from the Spirit, that's wonderful. And that is absolutely found in the Scriptures. But I don't think that's the peace that Paul is talking about here. The peace that Paul is talking about here is that peace that could only have come through the shedding of Jesus Christ's blood, through Jesus Christ becoming an enemy of God, 
at that moment when he died on the cross so that I, who was an enemy of God, could become his friend. I have peace with the Father. Not because I deserve it, not because I should have it, but because Jesus Christ was willing to die to obtain it for me. But the thing that's really interesting here, and it actually struggled, I struggled with it a little. It says that he will make peace with all things, bringing all things to himself, whether things on heaven or things on earth. Well, how does that happen? Well, reconciliation is being brought into an appropriate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And the incredible, incredible opportunity each one of us have here while we're living and breathing on this planet is to take advantage of that offer of reconciliation, to accept the offer of forgiveness, to allow Jesus Christ to be Lord of your life and to say, yes, Jesus, you are what I want. And then instead of being an enemy of God, we are brought into relationship with God through Jesus Christ and we are reconciled to him. But it says here that Jesus is going to reconcile everything to himself. Everything is going to be reconciled to him whether things on earth or things in heaven. Is the Apostle Paul saying that in the end everyone is saved? I've heard that preached before. Does that mean that in the end everyone is saved? Well, you have to ignore like 50 passages of the New Testament to come up with that truth. No. What it says is that everyone is going to be in an appropriate relationship with Jesus Christ. He is absolutely going to reconcile everything to himself. Jesus is a savior but he's also a judge. And for those who continually reject this incredible offer of salvation, who say, Jesus, thanks, no thanks, I don't want you, in the end, they will be brought into a right relationship with Jesus. But unfortunately, that relationship will be with Jesus as judge and them coming under his judgment. Because in the end, everything is going to bring him glory. That's what it said the new heavens and the new earth. There's not going to be a single corner of the new heavens and the new earth that does not bring him glory. Now, hopefully, each one of us are availing ourselves of the opportunity to be reconciled to him now so that part of the new heavens and the new earth we will experience is a place of peace, is a place of worship, is a place of incredible joy. But all of creation will be brought into a right relationship with Jesus. And for those who die rejecting him, those who die saying, no thanks, Jesus, they will be brought into a right relationship with him, but it will be through his judgment and with him as judge. When Paul was writing the church in Philippi, what did he say? In the end, every knee will bow. Hitler's knee will bow. Putin's knee will bow. Every knee will bow. More than that, every tongue will confess. Vladimir Putin will one day say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Adolf Hitler is saying right now, Jesus Christ is Lord. It's impossible for that not to be the case. All of the universe that Jesus has created and the entirety of the new universe, the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus Christ will create, it will all be in right relationship with him. Let's all take advantage of the opportunity we have now to avoid seeing Jesus as judge and having to internally endure his judgment. Instead, let us come to him and say, Jesus, yes, I repent, I receive, I want to be in right relationship with you now because I choose to, not in eternity because I have no choice at that point. Jesus, it's all about him. It always has been, it is right now, and it always will be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us an opportunity to spend some time looking to you through your word. And we just thank you. 
We thank you for the incredible Savior that we serve. And we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of the glories of who Christ is, the glories of what Christ has done. And we thank you, Jesus. We thank you that it is. It's all about you. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us boldness, that you would give us courage to always make it all about you. The world, our culture, is saying that's stupid, that's laughable, we're stupid. But I pray that we would hold on to truth more than we hold on to the jeers that we were reminded of on Friday, that we would have that courage to always make it all about you. And finally, Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much for losing it all for us, that we might be reconciled to your Father through your sacrifice. We worship you now, and we will worship you forever. And Jesus, it is in your name and for your glory alone that we pray these things. Amen.